0: You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We have a real fun show this week. The season's over. We're going to get into free agency and trades and all that kind of stuff over the winter. But this is the StatCast podcast. So what we need to do right now is look back at the first year of StatCast because I think we learned a lot. I think we got some really cool stats that came out. We learned a lot about what we need to learn more about. So here with me today is our first repeat guest who was on the very first edition of the podcast way back in June, Corey Schwartz, MLB.com Vice President of Stats. Corey, how are you this evening?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on, Mike. I appreciate it.
0: Corey, if you look back at the first year of StatCast, if you had to put, let's say, a route efficiency on year one, what, what, would, you, what would you think about that?
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to qualify that by saying one of the things we learned this year is that not all route efficiencies are created equal. Uh, you know, a player going straight in for a ball you know, charging a soft fly ball, the numbers will look a lot better than a player who's got to turn around and run straight back towards the center field fence. So uh, you know, that's a metric. It's a really good example of a metric that uh, tells us a lot about players and how they play the outfield. But even at that, we really have to drill down even further and learn how to uh, evaluate them in a more sort of Uh, even-handed apples to apples kind of way so we've learned a lot and as you said we you know the more we learn the more we realize what we still have yet to learn
0: so if you look back at the stats that we've gone with this year I think it's really interesting just some of the terms that you would have never heard people talk about a year ago you know exit velocity perceived velocity spin rate I guess within the game but not so much outside the game you look at all this stuff what's the one that really stands out to you as wow this is the one that this really popped this year this works so well
1: yeah, you know, I think exit velocity has caught on for a for good reason. You know, number one, it's one of the easiest things for us to measure. And number two, it's really easy to understand. You know, we know 100 miles an hour is fast. We know 50 or 60 miles an hour is not so fast in baseball terms. Uh, and it really tells a lot about the quality of contact and the quality of the hitter. So it's really sort of that, I don't want to say a perfect stat. There's no one stat that, that answers every question. But it's really a number that was easy to digest, easy to learn, easy to understand and really informs a lot about the player uh, very quickly so you know that's that's a number that's been available to front offices and and player evaluators in the industry for many years but this is the first time we've been able to put it in front of fans in you know in a widespread way, and I think it's really created a lot of interest for you know for good reason.
0: I think you really hit on something there, and that's the, the scale of it. Because we've known for years, a you know, 90 mile an hour fastball is pretty good. 100 mile an hour fastball from a pitcher is amazing. And the scale of this is pretty similar. It's not identical. I think probably a 110 mile an hour batted ball is maybe similar to a 100 mile an hour pitch or in that range. But I think it's nice that it's on that same kind of scale. It's not all of a sudden it's 200 miles an hour is great or 10 miles an hour is great and i think that really does make it easier for people to consume.
1: Yeah, and that's certainly look, i mean let's let's face it that's one of the challenges that we have faced with you know in year one of the system and and one of the things we'll have to look at as we go forward is how to take all these metrics and make them understandable and relatable so uh if we tell you that a player ran 21 miles an hour 20 miles an hour Uh, you know, that's as easy to understand as a 300 batting average or or 20 wins.
0: Yeah, I think your your context, right, is probably the number one key learning of this year is everything needs to have context. Maybe not so much exit velocity, but people don't know what a 2200 RPM spin rate is. Is that good or bad? And probably something we need to make sure to include in just about every single thing we do. But back to exit velocity, what's cool about that to me that really stands out is that, we can use it to kind of track hitter health. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times. You look at guys who Mike Trout's a great example. He hurt his wrist at the end of July and just had an atrocious August. Uh, probably cost the Angels a playoff spot and him an MVP. And you can really look at that chart, and you see he's going along month by month crushing the ball. And then August is just a valley, and then it comes right back up in September. Uh, and there's probably yeah, absolutely. a ton and, of and you know, examples. One of my pet players, Edwin Encarnacion,
1: um, his spring training was abbreviated. He had a lot of back problems. He had some uh, residual hamstring problems early in the season and you could see his exit velocity chart, you know, sort of the rolling average chart, just trending upward all season long as he got healthier and healthier. And really, you know, obviously he had that, I guess it was the month of August, he was just out of his mind. Um, you know, it really plays out. And, and the other interesting thing about exit velocity is that if you look at it on a granular level, what we learned is what, what Dr. Alan Nathan, uh, you know, well-known baseball physicist who, who we've, you know, talked to a lot about this project, what he calls a donut hole. Sometimes you can hit the ball too hard and it you know it, it gets over the infielders but it also gets to the outfielder maybe you hit it a little bit softer it drops in front of the outfielder so That's one of the interesting things we've learned is sort of the interplay between not only exit velocity but launch angle and launch vector as well.
0: When we started out with exit velocity at the beginning of the year, the the first kind of guy that came out was obviously Giancarlo Stanton because he hits the ball harder than anybody. And that was cool, but there was a little bit of, of maybe a little bit of pushback I found because it was almost, well, great, you told us that Stanton hits the ball hard. We already know that. But what I I think has really turned out to be fascinating is he got hurt at the end of June and he never came back. So he missed more than half the season. And now looking back, he still has nine of the top 12 hardest hit balls of the season. Right. And so I think what we're going to find is not just, oh, great, we quantified Stanton hits the ball hard. I think what we're going to find, we look back in five years, 10 years, he's like the your Chapman of hitting. Like He's going to be a guy who stays at that top level. Like I think we're, we're really being able to quantify he's not just great now, he might be one of the greatest of a generation as far as just hitting the ball hard.
1: Yeah, certainly for now. I mean, year one, he sort of set the bar very high and we'll see where we go the next couple of years. But the intriguing part... To me about this as well isn't just the guys like Stanton and Arnoldus Chapman and Trout, you know, the players that we know are exceptional. They pass that eye test very easily. You know, we learned a lot about guys like Randall Gritchuk and Justin Bohr this year, players that we really, you know, probably aren't known to casual baseball fans, really aren't known very widely outside of their local markets where they play. And those guys rank very highly among the uh, league leaders in exit velocity this year. And those are guys that, it, you know, it causes you to take a little bit more of a look at, at them and what they do. And it validates what we've seen from them in small sample sizes. You know, Justin Bohr was a Rule 5 pick, ended up hitting over 20 homers, ended up as the Marlins' cleanup hitter. Uh, and then when you have a healthy Stanton next year and Bohr playing a full season, that really changes your outlook on what that Marlins lineup can be. So um, it's exciting to see what the top players can do, but I think the real value of this system will be in sort of highlighting the lesser-known players who really have skills that match up with those top players?
0: Yeah, hey, Randall Grichuk and Tommy Pham is another one because one of the mm-hmm. Cardinals' Dean, but more guys can come out of nowhere and hit the ball. Uh, I thought it was interesting last week to see, or earlier this week to see the real-world applications. So when the Twins won, the posting on Byung hill Park, uh, Ken Rosenthal tweeted that one of the things that the teams looked into was his exit velocity in Korea. And, you know, you'd expect that teams would do that because they want to have as much data as possible. But I, I think that's helpful. Just kind of proving that this stuff has real world applications. It's not just us looking at spreadsheets. You know, we know the Astros chose Colin McHugh because of spin rate and the Mets probably went with Lucas Duda over Ike Davis because of exit velocity. And it, it just seems like this is becoming a more regular thing to see. well, this is why we chose a player.
1: Uh, yeah, no which, question. You know, the, the challenge for player evaluators is to look at skills. You know, it, it's it's not. To, it's easy to look at the spreadsheet and say, "Well, the guy's a 300 hitter, or he had this many homers, or whatever." But you really want to look at what the player's skills are and understand how those re- how those relate to the competition and other players, uh, and and you know how that player might perform as he moves up the ladder or gains a bigger role. So, you know, a guy like um, you know, like Colin McHugh with the spin rate or with the, you know with the exit velocity, it allows you to compare apples to apples across different leagues, different levels of play, and get a better feel for what those skills are. So I think there's a lot of value there throughout the industry.
0: Now I want to talk about fielding for a minute, because when we first heard about this technology last year, I think that was the first thing everybody went to was, oh, my God, we're finally going to revolutionize fielding stats. Uh, And, you know, so I've seen all this data, and there's some really incredible stuff. And I think, just speaking for myself personally here, what I've learned is that there's so much fielding data, and it's really, really important to only get to the data you want. For example, yeah. you want to know how hard a guy threw when he's trying to throw somebody out, but you don't want to have 15 or 20, you know, lightly tossed balls off a, a single left right. field thrown back in. So, you know, what's the future there? How do we attack that problem and really just, like, condense it to the real data?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, the the, the data set is so unbelievable, and we keep talking about we're going to revolutionize fielding, and we're going to change the way people look at players and everything. And, and probably there are some people out there, let's face it, who are like, yeah, okay, when's that going to happen? You know, we've we, you've got this great fancy system, but – you know, it's it's sort of a blessing and a curse having that much data. The nice problem to have is having a lot of data. The real challenge is, you know, turning it into something useful and meaningful. Uh and I think that'll be a big challenge for year two and beyond. You know, we can track all of these movements now in real time. Uh the systems have really been fine tuned. We have processes to audit and edit the data in real time and make sure that we're really getting highly accurate data. The second challenge is to sort of look at the relationships between these skills and figure out what creates the outcome. So If we see a base runner caught stealing, did he get a poor jump? Did the pitcher and catcher do a good job of holding him on? Uh, Did the catcher have a great pop time or make a strong throw? What's the one variable that if we changed it, the outcome of the play would have been different? Then we can really start to unlock the secrets to all of these plays and figure out why one play becomes a fly to right and the other play becomes a double in the alley. We can identify a specific skill and say it's because, you know what, the right fielder was standing 20 feet Further to the, his right than he usually does, and his his uh, first step was this much quicker, and his root efficiency was that, and that all all added up to a catch that normally has a 10% probability of being made. He made that catch. That's really where the true value is going to come from, and we can say this is the skill that makes the difference, and this is the skill that got used in that play.
0: Well, you hit on something really important there, because when I look back at Zach Greinke's season, for example, and he had a crazy low ERA. He's going to be in the top three in the Cy Young. He may or may not win it. But the reason, one of the big reasons he had that crazy low ERA is he had a really, really low batting average on balls in play. And there's always been that kind of going back and forth. Is that a skill? Is that luck? Is it the fielders? What is it? And so what I don't think I've been able to get to yet, but I'd really be fascinating in knowing is, does he have a skill at getting the right angle at the right velocity? Kind of going back to the donut hole, like you said. Does he have a skill at getting guys to hit it hard enough to get to the outfielder, but not so hard that it drops in front or goes over their head? Uh, And I think if we kind of combine angle and exit velocity into one uber stat, that's really something that helps help us get to that.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we'll learn that different pitch types and different pitch locations are are more likely to yield, you know, different ground balls or, you know, different launch angles off the bat. I think, you know, that's that's fairly well understood at this point. Now we'll be able to quantify that a little bit better and say that, well, you know, Greinke throws that cutter followed by a changeup and that entices the batter to do this. And those types of batted balls have an expected batting average of that. You know, We'll start to understand these relationships a little bit more. I mean, I kind of view it as you know, we have a really good understanding of what makes hitters good. We have an improving understanding of what makes pitchers good. We don't understand a lot about fielders. You know, I kind of view StatCast as the glue that will allow us to put all these things together and understand the relationships more. So we can say if his Babbitt was very low, it was, uh, you know, 40% hitting, 30% defense and 30%, you know, variation that next year will, 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 uh, you know, balance out.
0: Now, I think we mentioned, uh, or we we're speaking earlier, and some of the stats that we're, we're working on maybe going to be having some tweaks next year. So maybe pop time, maybe some fielding stuff. What's the one kind of big tweak that really stands out in the way we define this?
1: Well, you know, I, I think everything is always subject to improvement. You know, let's, let's be fair to ourselves. It's, you know, it was year one and there was a lot of data and a lot to learn. I think the, um, you know, I think our sort of baseline expectation of what the metrics would tell us was accurate, but as we learn more about the data and how the system works, you know, how the technology works, that'll sort of allow us to tweak our calculations and our rules a little bit to get values that are more meaningful. So uh, when we're looking at things like batted ball distances, if a guy hits a ground ball, you know, the the initial batted ball distance might only be 8 or 10 feet. What's a valid batted ball distance for a ground ball that you know, gets goes to the shortstop and turns into a 6-3 or that rolls all the way to the fence for a double, what's the right way to measure that? Uh, you know, for pop time, you know, catchers throwing the ball to second base or third base on stolen base attempts, we have to account for different pitch speeds and pitch depths uh, and the effective fielders. So if a catcher makes a great throw, but the fielder is out in front of the base, uh, you know, let's say he receives the throw in front of the base, that might actually make the pop time look a little bit lower than it should be. So we have to sort of normalize for all those things. So, you know, as I said at the top, I think, I think our logic going into these things was sound to begin with. But now that we have more data and more to see these different uh, scenarios, we can fine-tune the calculations and really start to, you know, nail down, you know, not only accurate numbers but accurate to, you know, the hundredths of a second and really make detailed comparisons
0: now going back to what i said about things that really stood out to me that i learned this year um and i know there's been a very, there's a big difference in technology as far as Statcast cast and pitch effects which we previously had and in terms of spin rate pitch effects calculates what it expects the spin rate will be and Statcast cast actually measures it uh, in reality and so you look at fastballs and you look at spin rate and when you, you think about how fastballs are usually impressive to people they think of velocity and obviously a Chapman fastball very different than a Chris Young fastball but what I found is there's almost a bigger relationship in the outcome with spin rate because a high mm-hmm. spin rate will get you uh, pop-ups fly balls strikeouts A low spin rates will get you ground balls and uh, if you're in the middle if you don't really have an impressive spin rate one way or the other you're not gonna get much of anything except for hit hard and I think we found that Nathan Navaldi <laughs> this year throws the ball really hard doesn't have impressive spin doesn't have movement he got crushed. And so I think yeah. that that's, that's kind of cool. It's not just about velocity for a fastball.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned, since you mentioned Chris Young, you know, there's another piece that we haven't started actively measuring yet, but we have the data to get to it, is the plane on which the pitcher throws the ball. You know, since you mentioned Chris Young, he doesn't throw hard. He only throws three pitches. It's not like there's a lot of uh, confusion about what's coming next. You know, fa- you know, fastball, changeup, breaking ball, that's pretty much it. But what is it about a guy who's 6'10 and throws the ball? Basically, it looks like it's dropping down on your head. That's really hard to hit. Uh, so I think one of the things we'll probably spend a little bit more time looking at is uh, you know, is the angle of attack, so to speak, of you know the angle of the pitch from the release heading into the batting zone or the batting area and figure out the impact of that value uh, on on the results of the of you know batted balls and batter performance. So you know as I said, the more we learn, the more we realize there's a lot more we can learn. and look you know not to wax poetic or get cheesy on you. That's what's so great about baseball. That's what's so great about this system. The more we know, the more we realize what we don't know, Uh, and there's always this sort of, you know, this rabbit hole keeps getting deeper and deeper, and it's really exciting to keep sort of tracking down the data and tracking down the evidence and learning more about players but realizing there's still so much more to learn. That's what makes it a great game. There's no right and wrong answer. There's just a you know, a trail that we can follow to try and figure out a little bit more every day.
0: Yeah, well, listen, it's been a real interesting year. And, uh, you know, I think one of the, the most interesting things about it is it's it's quantifying something that's real world. You can't see a weighted run created or a win above replacement. But scouts have been clocking pop time and, and running distance to first base for decades or centuries. Uh, and that's really what this is. It's just it's helping scouts or validating the work of scouts by being able to put real numbers to what they've been doing sitting in the bleachers for decades. Uh, and a- I think that's absolutely.
1: Cool. You, you know, it's uh, you know, you mentioned pop time before. You know, we've been constantly—I wouldn't say constantly—but we've spent a lot of time tweaking those values, and we realized that the closer we get to what we think is you know, finger quote, 100% accuracy, it's very close to what you would expect a scout or a player evaluator to come with. So, as you said. It really shows what a great job the uh, you know the trained professionals with major league clubs and professional organizations do, uh, and now we're just giving them better tools to to capture that kind of information.
0: And I think you're right. It's not scouts versus stats versus radars. I think it's everybody kind of pulling together towards the same goal. Uh, oh it's, sure. It's been a fun year. Corey Schwartz, Vice President of Stats for major league baseball.com Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mike. Great talking to you, and uh, it's been a great year for the StatCast podcast, so we're looking forward to your two.
0: (laughs) Thanks a lot. This has been the StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Thanks to Corey Schwartz of MB.com. We will be back next week.